Hello, I'm Joan. I'm a Canadian family physician who also works as a restorative medical educator, facilitator, and coach. I create spaces that rehumanize the work of healthcare. I'm creating this podcast to remind myself, as well as anyone else working in a helping profession, that when you are working and caring for your human patients, you are the other human in the room. All right. Hello, healthcare humans. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of The Other Human in the Room. I'm so excited to get to talk more with our guests today. Um, We first actually met on a panel that I was invited to talk that she was an excellent moderator of uh, about challenging patient scenarios, which if you listen to this podcast, you know, is kind of my jam. And I was so impressed with your like facilitation style, Stephanie, and then hearing more about some of the other work that you do in supporting medical learners and clinicians with like practice management and financial stuff. Um, And so I knew I would love to have you on and talk more about that because money and business are definitely things that can really dehumanize our experience of healthcare if we don't really understand what we're doing. It can create a lot of shame, create a lot of stress. So I would just love to hear all your thoughts on all of that. But before we do that, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself? What do you want people to know about you? Sure. Sounds good. Um, So thank you so much, Joan, for having me on your podcast. Um, So I'm Stephanie Zhao, otherwise known as Dr. Steph on social media. Um, So what I do is I have a lot of roles. Um, My clinical roles is that I do addiction medicine at Sunnybrook Hospital, and I also um, am the FOE or Family Health Organization lead at uh, Don Mills Family Health Team, where I do family medicine two days a week. Um, I also have administrative roles as well. So um, I have a teaching role with the university uh, where I teach financial literacy. Um, This is the, the financial literacy curriculum was something that I developed back in 2019, and it's kind of spread to all the all four years of the medical school class as well as residents um, uh, when it comes to practice management. And then my other admin role is equity, diversity, inclusion, and social accountability lead at Sunnybrook Hospital. And what we try to make sure we do is how can we utilize the rich resources of the hospital and branch out to the community and share that resource with uh, the community, especially vulnerable vulnerable patients um, and community family physicians. Uh, as well promote diversity and inclusion within the department. And then finally, in terms of other non, uh, I guess, institution or academic roles that I have. um, So the second, so how we met is that I'm the, um, so in OCFP, the Ontario College of Family Physicians, they have this program called Practicing Well, and it basically teaches family doctors in a panel discussion uh, format, uh, you know, about different um, or challenging cases that might cause burnout. So for example, we talked about uh, patient complaints, how to manage those, how to manage patient expectations, and how does that um, cause burnout in family doctors. Um, But they also touch on things like substance abuse, um, uh, managing patients with opioid use, um, managing patients with uh, mental health concerns, things like that, um, that a lot of new doctors don't really have experience with. So that's like one of my uh, non-academic um, roles. And then the other role I do is um, I'm on the board of directors for Toronto Public Health. So Toronto Public Health was most well known for the COVID vaccine outreach and uh, you know all of the vaccination efforts, but now they're trying to transition to more addictions related um, things like, you know how can we make sure that we provide um, safe supply, um, safe injection sites, um, mental health services and addiction services to the the population of Toronto, essentially. And they do a lot of other stuff too, like, you know, making sure the restaurants are clean and making sure that, you know, the childhood vaccinations are being administered. So all in all, like that's all the things that I, I do as part of my job description. Um, and on the side, I uh, am on social media. I'm on YouTube as Breaking Bad Debt, where I upload lectures about financial literacy. And uh, I'm also on Instagram at the same name, at Breaking Bad Dad, where I post little short, easy to read, passive learning type um, content also about financial literacy practice management. 
So that's a very long-winded answer, but I do a lot of different things. I wear a lot of hats. And so there's probably stuff that I'm missing as well, but that's all I can think of right now. Oh my gosh. I immediately have like two ways to go. I think I'll start with like um, personal and then, I mean, the name Breaking Bad, that's so good, right? But like, so what I wrote down was many hats. So I am curious. I am a person who loves to do many things. I've had to sort of join and then break up with several boards and in, in a way that felt good at like joining them and then letting go of them. I'm curious um, what you like about having so much variety in your schedule. And the word I'm curious about really is sustainability. How are you finding it? Like, are there times where it feels like a struggle and what are your ways of keeping it feeling more sustainable when you have, when you're sharing all these different roles? Yeah. And so the thing I always um, say when it comes to these questions about like, oh, how do you manage to do all these different things? Like, do you burn out? Is right. the way I think about it is when people get into medical school and you read their applications as a file reviewer, for example, you see that folks are so diversified in their interests. Like some people have research interests. Some people put in, put on like their marathons that they've done. They've put on like travel, like trips that they've taken on their application. Some of them are a part of this club or that club. They, they do a lot of different things. And then I find that once they get into medical school and it's come time to pick a specialty or find, a, find the specialty that's right for you, suddenly people just narrow. It's like, if you're going for a very competitive specialty, let's say plastic surgery as an example, then suddenly you're part of the plastic surgery interest group. You do plastic surgery research, you do observerships and electives all in this one narrow area. And you kind of just lose sight of all of the other cool stuff that you are doing um, just to kind of narrow yourself. And and when, when I give med students advice, when it comes to like choosing specialties, sometimes you might not actually end up getting into the specialty that you want. And it feels like such a huge loss of sense of, of yourself because for the past four years, you were going all into this one direction. And so that's why I think it's still really important to maintain all of those interests that you had prior to entering medicine, because sometimes medicine can be all encompassing and all of your friends are in this med school bubble. Everything you're doing is just medicine related that you lose sight of all those other interests that you have. So that was actually a big reason why I chose family medicine as my specialty. I was one of those people who didn't know what to go into. I was very indecisive, um, shadowed and explored many different specialties before settling on uh, family medicine, because uh, what I've noticed amongst family doctors is that they do have those broad interests. You see family doctors in po um, public policy, you see family doctors in public health, um, you see family doctors starting their own clinics, being entrepreneurs. Um, you also see family doctors um, in like various different roles, like teaching, um, hospital administration, media, all sorts of things, right? And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. And that kind of jives with how like my personality is like, like having all these broad interests, um, being involved in many different areas. And that's what keeps the day-to-day -day interesting, right? It's not the same thing that I do every day. It's something different every day. So hopefully that answers your, uh, answers your question about why I kind of branch out so much. And I think that's actually protective for me when it comes to burnout, because when you're doing something different every day, it's something exciting that you look forward to every day. And so even though maybe someone from an outside perspective sees like, oh, why do you have so many jobs? Like, why do you have three jobs um, and I guess three sources of income or more than three sources of income and so on? Um, the way I don't, I don't really think of it as a job when I really enjoy doing it. Um, and because I really enjoy doing all of those things, even though there are certain things that I don't really get paid for, like developing YouTube videos, I quite like doing it. It's fun. It's creative. So it doesn't really feel like a burden to my schedule or a burden to my time at all. Mm. Well, it's, and it, you know, it's speaking of like diversity, I know we were speaking of diversity in terms of like racial and other identity diversity, but the thing I love about the notion of diversity in general is that it, that's what creates a healthy ecosystem. And so I just love this is like, um, once I decided this, this will seem like a tangent, but it's not, I am not someone who can like often finish reading books, especially nonfiction books. I've decided that I want to reclaim that. And so I call myself a book snacker. Like I like just reading the chunks from the things. And I, I think that's also, I'm realizing what I am like in terms of 
though I'm narrowing down what brings me the most joy, I have just like been a medical job experience snacker, you know, like in terms of like, and that actually can create a more healthy palate for a lot of people, right? Where um, instead of showing up to do the exact same thing every day, maybe for some people that feels really fulfilling and sustainable, but it, you're right. It makes sense that for a lot of people, it wouldn't. Instead, it would feel kind of like this grind because we used to be people with like really interesting, varied interests. And sometimes we just get like smushed into this one little box and it becomes sort of this monoculture. And that's actually like not healthy for ourselves as humans to only be stimulated in this one way. Yeah. And likewise, like for yourself as well, right? Like you have a podcast, you do coaching yeah. and you also do family medicine and teaching. So mm -hmm. you're also wearing a lot of hats too. And so I'm actually kind of curious on from, from your end, like, um, was that kind of similar reasons why you decided to have all these different, different roles? Um, and sometimes do you ever find that those roles kind of help you more in other areas? Like for example, a podcast oh, yeah. brings more people to your coaching business or to your family practice and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I feel like, I feel like when I first, cause like I have tried a lot of different things. I've tried different kinds of teaching. I've been on different boards and committees and I'm like grateful for all those experiences because, um, I learned where, what sparks my joy, if you will, like, you know, and where I find I'm most effective. So the thing that I've liked over time is like narrowing down to, to, I knew I just always, I was not that interested in only, not only doing family medicine as if it's like less than, but for me, like you say, doing different things every day and having things feed off of each other. Um, honestly, for me, the, the impetus to start doing any kind of committee or teaching work was showing every up every day with my patients and realizing how like unhealthy our healthcare system is and feeling like if I'm going to be able to like look my patients in the eye, I also have to be in some way a part of helping the system improve yeah, itself. I completely agree. And like I, and so that's where education came in and that's still been very fulfilling, like working with the local medical school. I've tried different kinds of committee work and I'll probably still do some, uh, like local system change is a really fascinating thing. But I think what I've learned for myself, who's I'm also really into like personal development and discovery of self. I've always like, I've been in therapy of various kinds for lots of years. And like, so I've learned so much about myself and notice how that helps me show up differently for my patients and, and use something, some of the tools I've learned, say, from my coaching training with patients. And so that's what I now I'm like so excited about to also share with other people, like through workshops and coaching as well. Yeah. And even so, through this podcast as well. Yes, like it's a great exactly. way to kind of have a conversation or listen to a conversation with you and someone else. And yes. it can also benefit the listener. Yeah, exactly. That's like, um, I love the, probably this project here, like this podcast, along with like some of the coaching spaces I've created is like some of my favorite, like, and especially when I get to have conversations with people like you, it's like so exciting. And like, then getting messages on social media or whatever, people being like, wow, that one really made a big difference. Like, you get to make impact in a different way and you don't even know how far your impact is. Like, I bet it's actually the same with your like financial stuff. And I'm actually curious, like to segue into that, like what made you decide to start sharing what, like what made you decide that financial literacy was a thing that you wanted to spend time educating people about? And then what made you decide to do that in this like public way, like on YouTube and social media and those sorts of places? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so how I got into finance, becoming financially literate, it wasn't so much um, of an interest in the beginning. It was more of a need. So mm. my parents and I, when we immigrated to Canada, we lived in subsidized housing. My parents didn't speak English and they worked minimum wage jobs. Um, and that was challenging because they, because of the language barrier, um, when you're going to a bank, they couldn't talk to the banker in the same language. Um, at the time, a lot of things weren't actually translated. Um, mm. So, and likewise, when they're looking for a job, they also um, really didn't know about what is EI or what is Ontario Works and all those different things that uh, come with becoming employed. And so, uh, because I spoke English, um, since I picked it up from being in school all the time, um, my English was better than theirs. And as a result, I was the one accompanying them to all of those visits to the bank where I learned, I picked up terminology, like what is an RRSP and things like that. I was 
maybe around seven or eight years old at the time. And that's when I started picking up the terminology um, when it comes to opening a bank account. What's the difference between a checking account, a savings account, things like that, because I was translating it for my parents. And then um, when my mom was applying for, for jobs, I was actually going to the library and I looked up um, these books on how to write a resume. And then I was helping her make the resume and I would be in the library. I, I knew how to use the computer because I was like, I like to go to the library to play games on the computer, but I learned how to use Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel on their computer as well. And then I helped my parents with that. Um, and then there was a time because my parents don't have um, any university education. They didn't really, um, the, a lot of the jobs, it was very insecure. So we, there was a high turnover when it comes to jobs. And so what, what, what do you do when you're unemployed? Um, well, you know, you can apply for different social service programs. So I was helping them kind of navigate those forms. And so that's why I said it wasn't so much me becoming financial literacy because I had financially literate because I had an interest in this stuff. I didn't really have an interest in like stocks or yeah. learning about investing or anything. I kind of just happened to fall into it because of being the translator and always being there um, in the bank with my parents or meeting financial advisors with my parents and things like that. Um, and so that's kind of how I started knowing about all of these different things. And then when I was in undergrad, when I got into Queen's University, um, uh, prior to that, I was working at since the age of 13. I did newspaper delivery. I tried to do some tutoring on the side, and that kind of helped fund my university education. But then I also started learning about, oh, there's grants. There's something called OSAP that you can apply for. Um, and so that's when I started learning about, okay, well, this is how I can fund my university education. And having the library as a free resource was extremely useful because through that, I learned about how to write scholarship essays, um, you know, how, how to apply for different programs, application essays, how they worked. Um, and then I also learned about, you know, what is student debt and how student debt works. Um, and then once I was in university, they had this thing called work study program. So I did a lot of work study and I was actually earning an income uh, as a student. And so now I have this income that goes towards my tuition, that goes towards my living expenses. I also had scholarships coming in. I actually ended up having a little bit of a surplus of income as a student. So I kind of gave that to my parents to help them out. But then I also kind of thought about, okay, what else can I do with this surplus of income? And that's when I discovered something called investing. Because um, I was just <laughs> randomly on like Google looking up, you know, how to afford uh, school as a student. What is the best what should I learn about as a student to know how to manage my finances? So that's when I kind of started learning about what is this investing? Like if you just, and I read this book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad for the first time. And it kind of changed my perspective on how money works in the world. Um, and that, you know, there's ways of making money by working for it, but there's other passive ways of making money as well through investing. And then I've kind of became interested in that. I discovered in, in those random tunnels that I've gone through, I discovered something called the FIRE movement or financial independence retire early. And then it kind of was about frugality. And I was already a frugal person to begin with because of my upbringing. And I thought, hey, like, because I'm a very frugal person, being frugal and staying frugal and not just blowing the extra money that I have on, you know, going to the bar or going out to eat with friends, buying clothes, and in instead using that towards um, investing or towards starting a business or something like that, that was really a good way to start developing passive income streams. So it was then when I went into medical school, um, things got even more expensive than before. And it was kind of like a whole nother level of um, the social status and the economic class of my classmates. And, uh, and so it was a little bit more different. And then I really had to lean more into, you know, trying to be frugal, finding ways to make money um, through either tutoring or through uh, working. I actually did work uh, during medical school as well on the side um, and really leaning into this financial literacy, trying to be as financially literate as I can to in order to afford medical school and not graduate with like six figure. I still graduate with six figures of debt, but not graduating with like more than like 150,000, yeah. 200,000, like those kind of levels of debt. Um, and now like looking back, it, so, you know, all of this knowledge that I've gained over the years, I would probably say that 
I've been learning about financial literacy longer than I've been learning medicine, simply because of that experience as a child. And it's kind of nice because what I do now is I'm on the financial aid committee at U of T. And as part of that role, we teach students about the line of credit. We teach them about how to apply for scholarships and where you can look for grants, how to pay down student debt, how OSAP works. And those are all things that I've kind of taught myself that I'm circling back and teaching uh, medical students about. Um, and even all of the stuff that I help my parents with, like how do you apply for EI, for example, if you get if you become unemployed? Those are actually things that I help my patients with too. And I kind of guide them through that as well. And as family doctors, as you know, we do a lot of paperwork and a lot of the paperwork kind of comes from the CRA, like the disability tax credit forms, for instance. Um, and so all of that kind of stuff I've kind of experienced with my parents too. And so now I kind of already know how that system works. And I think it benefits when it comes to advocating for your lower income patients as well. So all in all, all that to say is that, you know, I never really, um, you know, sought out to have an interest in finance. It just kind of happened. I guess I forgot to mention also is that during medical school, I did a master's as well. It was just part of a dual degree program. And my master's was um, with Rotman School of Business and the School of Public Policy. It was like a combined master's. And um, being in the business school class, it also kind of taught me more about like entrepreneurship, um, knowing how to read a financial statement, how hospitals are funded. So it's more of a systemic um, knowledge that I gained as well. Um, and I guess what, you also asked about the social media piece and how that came to be. Um, I actually was not on Instagram for for anything financial. I never really started any financial um, literacy Instagram account until 2018, 2019. Um, at that time, I had started this course with the Community of Support, which is a program to support low-income and equity-deserving students who, are, who want to enter medical school or who are in medical school, but just like in their first year. And I developed this webinar called Affording Medical School, which is basically teaching everything that I kind of learned myself and applied within myself. Um, and one of the students there, they were in their first year of medical school and they had mentioned to me that, you know, how do you um, not uh, keep up with the Joneses, right? Because everyone they yes. see have really expensive tastes. Um, after get, passing a test or something, they would buy a handbag as a reward or they would use their line of credit on lavish vacations. Or one person they mentioned, they use their line of credit to furnish their apartment with entirely new furniture, all on loans. And they were spending a lot. And so this shows up on Instagram as like a highlight reel of an expensive lifestyle. And so that way that that student, they said they couldn't afford any of that stuff and they feel pressured to use their line of credit to fund these vacations so that they can go with their friends or to buy certain clothing items, um, to live in certain um, areas that are expensive, to have their own apartment instead of having a housemate or something like that. Um, they said like, you know, how do you kind of deal with that? So I actually initially started Breaking Bad Debt on Instagram um, as the antithesis to an influencer because an influencer kind of influences you to buy stuff or to share that type of lifestyle, to emulate a lifestyle. But all the stuff that I was posting in the beginning was like, oh, I'm using coupons to buy groceries. How do you <laughs> so save good. money on groceries with couponing? Um, you know, how, like how much I'm saving per month, how much I'm spending. And it's, it's all like just practical short tips on, you know, saving money as a student. And so I, I kind of became the anti-influencer. So there wasn't a lot of people um, in that space when I started Instagram. Um, so I, I was one of the, I guess, earlier folks in, in Canada who uh, did an Instagram that was not promoting spending. It was promoting saving, it was promoting frugality and investing. And I think that's what kind of made it very unique. And so I started gaining a lot of followers that way, just because it was very different than what you usually see on Instagram. It's like you scroll through Instagram and it's like photos of like um, expensive dining, whining and dining, all that kind of stuff, buying expensive clothes, makeup, vacation. And then suddenly it's like a post about the TFSA or something like that. <laughs> so that's um, that's what I sought out to do. And I think because that was very well received by 
medical students or students in general, um, it kind of gave me the leverage to advocate to the dean's office about starting a financial literacy curriculum because I was just teaching financial literacy to low-income students, um, but you know other students in the class found the topics important to them too. You don't necessarily have to be a low-income student to learn how to pay down your debt and how to reduce debt. And so that's kind of what expanded to becoming that financial literacy curriculum that you see at University of Toronto today. That's amazing. Yeah, long oh, story. Man. No, that was like, oh, it's so beautiful. Like you you took what you experienced personally and then found ways like what helped one of my favorite mantras for myself is like what what saved me can save others or what helps me helps others and i just i just feel that in the ethos of what you have done of just like look at like you've walked the walk so you're not like you know sharing things that aren't what you have done personally you know and i think like money is such a it's it's a subject that can be so shrouded in shame certainly debt is a subject that's so shrouded in shame i think I have personally seen many different like money mindsets across physicians and other healthcare professionals where there's sort of, there's like one thing where it's sort of the root of all evil. And like, if you're talking about money, you're a bad clinician. Cause like, you should just be doing it because you want to help people. And then you also do see people where it's like, very it's very financially focused and I don't know which way there's not going to be one good or bad way, but I see like that there's quite, um, Quite a it's range. Quite, quite a yeah. range. And I'm curious if you've noticed the same thing and like how you, well, yeah, I'm just curious what yours, your interactions with like, cause you're like, Hey, I do financial education. Like how did different kinds of clinicians approach you? What did they struggle with, you know, in terms of their money approach? Yeah, I think it, it's definitely a range. And when I started off as a student, I was actually asking some staff physicians, how much would I expect to make in your specialty? And apparently that was a no-no question to ask. I just didn't know because I didn't know the hidden curriculum. But <laughs> apparently like either some doctors don't want to tell you, they just ignore your question, pretend they didn't hear it. Um, or they would say, oh, don't worry about it. You'll make enough in the end. And so they don't actually give me an answer. But the reason why I asked that was because I was in a lot of debt so that's why I, I needed to know, like, can I actually pay this debt off or how quickly can I pay the debt off? Yeah. But I think that's gotten, that's started to change now because ever since we started the financial literacy curriculum and we've um, tried to do that with other schools as well. So we've presented at the Canadian Conference on Medical Education about a collaboration that U of T did with McGill in us helping them start their financial literacy curriculum. And I've also worked with Dalhousie to help them develop a financial literacy curriculum as well. So now that this kind of stuff is more and more talked about, and even with the Physicians Financial Independence Facebook group that Jane and Paul Healy uh, started, um, it's just become more as part of the conversation in amongst physicians, um, especially, I guess, maybe younger or middle of career physicians. And um, they're starting to understand why it's important to talk to students about how much would you expect to make as a physician? How do the billing codes work and things like that? So I think it is important because if you look at any other industry like finance, dentistry, law, um, there is always some sort of discussion on the business side of that particular field. But in medicine, why is it any different, right? All family doctors essentially are small business owners. Um, and as a small business owner, you have to learn how to run uh, your practice like a small business. It's also impacted by the same uh, financial um, issues that, say, a restaurant owner or a dentist who runs their dental practice is impacted by as well. So that's why I think it is very important to have that conversation. And I do understand where that stigma comes from, where it's like, um, as a physician, you're doing everything out of the goodness of your heart. So that's why you're volunteering to take on these committee roles or take on these um, board positions, like things like that. But I think even that is starting to change too, because from like an equity, diversity, inclusion standpoint, um, you know, asking someone who is diverse themselves to do all of the diversity work of a department is known as the minority debt. And it's called that because, or the minority tax, it's, it's called that because as a visible minority, you're doing all this work, but that doesn't necessarily help you at all. You're not getting paid for it. 
And also um, it's not as beneficial for your promotions mm. as say using that time to do research or something instead. Um, and, so, and, and that's why like, there's a lot now with the EDI movements being more, you know, people being more aware of EDI um, it's starting to change and we're starting to see more people who um, are racialized themselves advocating for pay um, for the, you know, the emotional effort, the actual contribution to making the lecture slides or things like that when it comes to doing diversity work. So I hope that now it's starting to change more. And even for myself, um, when I'm being asked to do those type of jobs, and often they'll say, oh, like, you know, it's just good for your CV, like, um, do it for free because we don't have funding for it. I always try to ask about funding. Um, if they don't have it, then that's fine. At least I ask. And the fact that I ask, sometimes it actually does generate funding. Like people will start thinking about it. Okay, well, we don't have funding for it this year, but let's see what we can do. Um, there must be a pool of funding for, for you to do this somewhere. And they usually end up finding it, especially when you come at it from the perspective of like, well, I'm canceling clinic to teach this lecture. And yeah. also I put in a lot of effort making this lecture slides. So I think it is important to be compensated fairly. So I understand that, yes, there is a component of volunteerism in medicine. Like definitely it's good to volunteer, but I don't think people should be forced to volunteer to do things in areas that, you know, take up a lot of their time, take up a lot of their income. And I think it goes across any field, not just medicine. Anyone deserves to be compensated fairly for their time. Mm. Amen. I love, and I love how you just wove together, like the Jedi, like the EDI stuff with money, because I think sometimes we think of those as completely different conversations. They're sort of like, let's try and make things equitable and fair, but not a, but like money's over here and we'll like keep all the money stuff the same, but it's like, well, money is like kind of our primary resource. It is a primary resource of power. Like it, it's a, it is a way that power is handed to one another in our society. Yeah. Right. And so I, you're not really having a conversation about diversity or inclusivity. If you're just like putting different races on your brochure, like it's like also who are you paying and at what rates? Right. So exactly. So important. I love that. Um, so good. So what do you find are like when you're working? So do you mostly, when you're doing this teaching, is it mostly with students or do you also work with practice and clinicians as well? Yeah. Across the spectrum. So, yeah. um, medical students, I teach them in their medical school classes, or sometimes I'm an invited lecturer and I go to different universities or different medical schools to teach them. Um, so sometimes I'm at Queens, sometimes I'm at Western. So it, it kind of differs um, based on the month. Um, and then I teach residents. So I teach family medicine residents, their billing lectures and their transition to practice lectures. Mm -hmm. And then I also do that at other schools as well. Like mm -hmm. most of the Ontario schools, except for NASM. Um, I'm probably like a guest lecturer there for their residents as well. And then for staff physicians, I also do that too. So I've kind of done talks with the Ontario Medical Association, Canadian Medical Association, uh, focusing on uh, post-grad, like early in career to mid-career physicians. And then I guess the one other thing is that I didn't mention is um, two years ago, I started a conference called the Canadian Physicians Financial Wellness Conference. Ooh. And um, it was actually something that... Um, I want to also give credit to Jane and Paul Healy and Dr. Mark Soth as well from the Looney Doctor blog, because um, all of us were kind of the physicians who got into this financial literacy stuff early on, and um, they were an immense help in helping to develop the conference and the content of the conference. And so the, the vision of this conference is threefold. The first is to provide evidence-based information uh, on financial literacy by physicians for physicians. So most of our speakers are physicians themselves. They don't have very much conflict of interest. Um, and uh, they've also have a lot of experience with financial literacy, right? Um, the second component of the vision is that it is accessible. So we are very, we're one of those rare financial conferences that don't have manuals. I would say that 60% of attendees are female and mm -hmm. probably an even third split is rural. Like it's not just all city people or suburban people. We have a good number of people who are rural 
And the reason why I think we, as a conference, are a good representation of EDI is because we actually put that into our vision, the accessibility um, of people to attend. So we try to charge about, I believe um, this year it's around $80 for physicians and $20 for students, $30 for residents. So we're trying to make the price very cheap compared to American conferences and um, which charge $2,000 for yeah. someone to attend a, a financial conference. Um, there are even like Canadian doctors who started courses for financial literacy, but those are like in the 300s and, and up. Um, so we try to make it fair based on the price and we make it online so that anyone can attend from anywhere. You don't have to fly into a conference center to go to this conference. Um, and also we try to make sure that our speakers aren't just all male um, because that's what happens a lot in financial conferences. It just so happens that a lot of males are in the financial industry. So we always try to make sure we have very diverse people. So we've had someone who um, spoke at a conference who was like a refugee themselves, like a female, they were a refugee. Uh, we've had like a lawyer talk about prenups who she, she was like grew up in a single parent household, also an immigrant uh, herself. Um, we've had individuals who have experience um, met like with the black community as well, but they're also, they also do stuff in like real estate, for instance. So we try to keep it very diverse. And I think when you look at the conference website and you see the diversity, um, it also attracts people who are diverse, who wants to attend as well. So that's why we actually, for an audience, we have a very diverse audience as well. So I believe last year we had about 350 people attend um, across Canada. And we also um, donate 90% of the proceeds. So we were able to raise about 27,000 um, of which we, from last year. And then the year before, we also raised about 15,000. So oh. the year before we donated that to Habitat for Humanity um, because of their work in affordable housing. And then the year after with our 20 something thousand, we established an endowment fund using that money. So it, it will create scholarships in perpetuity for a student, a medical student who is needs-based. So this year I actually got to present that award to the medical student. Uh, and we've partnered with U of T so that U of T invests the money for us and does the financial checks for like needs-based and things like that. Like a student's financial needs status, they'll check their taxes and so on. Um, so U of T kind of uh, administers a scholarship, but we made the donation to have that as an endowment fund. So this year it went to a medical student um, who is an international student from Nigeria. Um, and she's someone who has uh, also ha has financial need themselves, but they also try to ensure that other people of financial need are uplifted as well. So mm. we got to present that award to her too. So sorry, that was like a huge um, digression. But basically what I'm saying with regards to this conference is that most people who attend are people in their early career to mid career. So when you ask the question about like, do you do any teaching for physicians, like people who've already graduated residency and no longer got exposure to the financial literacy curriculum, the answer is yes. It was through this conference where I also yeah. do a lot of teaching as well. That's incredible. And just like, so you get to see that, I mean, just that conference sounds awesome. And um, getting to see, I'm always curious, like what are like the, the key questions people are bringing to you and then what do you find like people mirror back to you or like when you talk about this like these are the pearls that you find most often like again and again you you're probably bored repeating them but like people really need to have this part of their money belief or their their this part of their money education really like emphasized you know yeah and that's really good uh good question because um it's differs across each stage so yeah. let's let, let me try to answer this by what are most medical students asking me, what are most residents asking me, and what are most staff physicians asking Perfect. me. Yeah. So for medical students, a lot of medical students often have the question about, should I pay debt or should I invest? Or how do I prevent myself from going into a lot of debt? And there was this period of time during the pandemic where medical students were investing their line of credit because you had all this money and uh, you know stocks. Uh, so it was cheap debt. And then they saw that stocks were going up. So, and Bitcoin was going up and all these cryptocurrencies were coming out, right? And and um, in my work in the financial aid office, we've actually encountered some situations where 
you know, there were med students who invested their line of credit. And then suddenly the interest rates started going up, but their stocks started going down. Or like you started seeing a lot of crypto companies collapsing and they had money in that. And so now they were losing like twice as much because not only was the stock going down, but the, also the interest rate was going up too. And they were paying a lot more in interest. And so we kind of had to, uh, I had to add that in my lecture about the importance of trying to use your line of credit for what it is for. Like my biggest advice is think of the line of credit as a loan that your family member gives you. Would you be, would it be appropriate if your family member found out that you were using your line of credit, which is meant for your schooling, um, in investing in, you know, speculative investments. So that can be kind of like a challenge for, you know, med students to think about, but it's always something I try to like encourage them to think about because think of it, if the line of credit is actually the bank's money, it's not your money, even though it looks like it's your money. And eventually the bank might actually want it back. If anything happens, like for instance, you had to drop out of medical school for whatever reason, um, you, you no longer have that um, proof of enrollment that the line of credit needs to verify that you get those favorable interest rates of prime minus 0.25. And so if you are no longer a medical student for whatever reason, that can become shaky and the bank can easily ask for their loan back. So that's why the line of credit is called a callable loan. The bank can call it back if they want it to. And suddenly you're on the on the line for like, okay, well, if I used up 100,000 for it, where am I going to come up with 100,000? So I would probably say like, if you're a medical student, just be careful about doing leveraged investing using your line of credit to invest because right now the interest rates are so high and they just recently went up again last week. Um, and so you're they're very high. So it's very hard for you to find any sort of investment that can perform as well to cover that debt that you're accumulating through the interest alone. Um, when it comes to residents, my pro my probably my biggest suggestion is be very careful about um, looking into like job opportunities. Um, always be on the lookout, always explore, and don't be afraid to ask about different job positions. Because I notice a lot of residents, um, they when they kind of graduate or they're about to graduate, they'll just take whatever job that's available. And, and it yeah. depends. Sometimes there are, um, there are specialties where there aren't as many job opportunities out there. And so you have to kind of take what you get. Um, and often I see residents not knowing how to negotiate, um, not knowing how to uh, kind of just getting sucked into poor or signed on to poor um, locum or poor um, job opportunities or contracts that um, aren't really good for them. So a common thing that I notice is that they might often undervalue themselves. They don't necessarily know what they're worth when they're signing these contracts. So I always recommend like if you're a member of the OMA, the OMA does provide free um, contract review for residents as well. And it's something you should definitely look into. Um, and then the other aspect of it is, uh, um, you know, there are other ways to negotiate. So instead of asking just for like a higher income, for instance, you might want to consider having more admin time. So for example, if $500 is the locum rate for a half day of three hours. A lot of these residents are finding like, okay, well, I'll I'll see these patients for three hours, but then you're not getting paid for all the time you spend doing admin work. So that's why you want to make sure that uh, you advocate for yourself to have maybe two and a half hours plus 30 minutes of um, admin admin time. Uh, and that's all under the $500. So that way it'll you'll learn how to better negotiate. Um, and then I guess just in terms of staff physicians, I find a lot of staff physicians um, especially have questions about retirement. How does retirement work and when to retire? Um, because I think a lot of staff physicians, once they're making that type of money, um, they tend they might either have a lot of lifestyle inflation, they'll buy an expensive home or they will um, send their kids to expensive schools and whatnot. And then suddenly they realize they don't really have a lot left to retire. So then they end up, you know, working until they're like 70. So even in my clinic, I have someone who's 74, they just retired, but they came back out of retirement and started to continue to work. And I think, um, perhaps it's also just, you know, you see a lot of staff physicians, all they know is to do medicine. They don't really know to do other things as well. And so once they retire, they don't have anything else to do that's fulfilling to them. 
then they have to come out of retirement and go back into practice. Or you might notice people who just don't have enough to retire on and uh, they just have to go come back to work and that can often cause burnout as well. So I think biggest um, things that I see for staff physicians that are recommended is, you know, knowing how to utilize your corporation, your RRSP, um, and potentially even an IPP or individual pension plan uh, as your retirement strategy. Um, sometimes I see, you know, really focusing on your family, right? There's your work life and some people are married to their work, but divorced at home and you don't want to end up in that kind of situation as well. Um, so I see a lot of that, those issues coming up, um, you know, how to balance your time better so that you are spending more time at home instead of always working to service debt or, to, or I don't know, just because you had very high work hours, for instance. Um, and then I guess the third thing when it comes to physicians is also um, proper use of their corporation. Like I often see a lot of people asking about corporation stripping or corporate um, capital gain stripping to pull out a lot of money from their corporation because they need it as a down payment or something. And um, if you're if you plan properly, you wouldn't need to rely on doing that um, because sometimes people as staff physicians, they get not so great financial advice where they're just told, oh, you know, like try to put everything into your corporation, um, make it so that, you know, uh, your corporation ends up being huge. And then when it's actually to come time to take money out, it becomes very inefficient to take money out. So, you know, having a fee-for-service financial planner to kind of make those projections for you to help you plan for retirement, um, to help you plan for, let's say, like a big home purchase you're making, that can, that is actually what I feel like a lot of staff physicians do need. All they know is, okay, I'll just put everything into the corp and that's it. And, and I'll just build up this massive corporation to, uh, for my retirement. But then eventually the, the stuff has to come out, the money has to come out. And so I guess those several areas that I've mentioned are probably the biggest questions that I often get asked. Um, and I think there's probably more than that, just because once you become a staff physician, there's even more questions that can come up. Your financial situation becomes even more complicated than when you were a resident earning a salary and then when you were a med student with no salary at all. So that's why I always, my biggest advice to everyone across the whole uh, continuum of people is just get started early. Um, you know, even though you feel like it's too late, you're already a staff physician. It's always, there's always um, a time to start. And the earlier you start, the more prepared you'll be, especially once you reach retirement and you actually do have a plan for retiring. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I mean, and the underlying question of that, it's like, it's never too late to start. So wherever you are is a great place. Yeah. And don't be afraid to ask the question, right? Like, I think that's what's so powerful because so many of us feel shame if we're not good with money or we're whatever, we have all these ideas of how we should be with money and if we're not, but like wherever you are is where you are. And so seeking out advice from people like yourself or say going to that conference, it sounds like there's so many opportunities now for people to educate themselves more and um, find trusted sources to get information that'll be supportive of your future, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. It's never too late to start, even when it feels like you are later than other people. Cause I do know that sometimes on those like Facebook forums, you feel yeah. like you're behind compared to your colleagues, yeah. but you actually, if you think about it on the upside, you have these, all these very knowledgeable colleagues to go to, mm -hmm. and you also can, uh, um, know, you know, where to, uh, who to ask, um, you know, who to recommend. You have a community around you. Um, there's, there's so many resources out there. Um, you know, just start now. Start now. Okay. Well with that, we're already at the end of our time and I'm, I'm mad at it, but that's how it goes. So where can people find you if they want to learn more from you? Yeah, I'm very easily findable. Um, so if you are on YouTube, I'm at Breaking Bad Debt. Um, you'll probably find me through a variety of lecture recordings or collaborations I've done with other people in the financial space. Um, on Instagram, also at Breaking Bad Debt. I'm also on Twitter at Stephanie Y, Z-H-O-U is my last name, Zhao. Uh, on Twitter, I'm also on LinkedIn, same name. Um, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much uh, all the social media. I'm on all the social media out there. On all the socials. Are you on TikTok? 
actually i'm not on tiktok i know that there is a viral video of me on tiktok what but yeah that's for another story but um, (laughs) i gotta go find it there was it's one of those like um you know there's like all these uh, people that go around asking you oh what's your salary and what do you do like that's like a big thing and then i was just standing in line at starbucks and then someone asked me if they can ask me that and then i said sure why not and it turned out to go viral it has like 1.5 million views or something like that so okay i feel like i might have already seen i remember seeing one and it wasn't you but like i've seen that there's a couple it's like like person on the street because the thing yeah. i noticed is the two ones i saw were both physicians and i was like oh and so maybe oh, interesting. One of them was it might have been me yeah yeah it might have been because um it, there's it's a it's a thing now like people on tiktok they'll just go around asking uh random people how much they make and what they do and I, i'm okay with it it's like income yeah. transparency i think it's important um to have some income transparency and to make sure people are open to talking about it so that's why I I agreed and I said sure why not um so but I personally do not have TikTok so I don't actually know um much about it about that video on TikTok beyond what my students have told me about it (laughs) I love that Oh, well, with that, uh, thank you so much for your time, Stephanie. And I feel like I learned a bunch and I'm definitely going to go check out your YouTube for sure. And yeah, for everyone listening, I hope you heard the messages that I heard about, like, it's never too late to start. And I mean, this is, this is an important issue that we don't often get enough education on. So I just am so inspired by other clinicians who are taking upon themselves to like help and support their peers and destigmatizing and like sharing education. So thank you so much for all you do. No worries. Thank you for having me. I would love to take this work deeper with you. Visit joanchanmd.com today and discover my growing menu of options for restorative medical education to suit your learning needs. I offer one-on-one coaching, customized workshops, and self-study courses that allow you to connect not only with my work on a deeper level, but also with other healthcare humans just like you. So if you want to start humanizing your work in healthcare to a deeper level and do it in community with others, please visit joanchanmd.com and find those options and what fits you and your life today.